and welcome back to another episode of the Bravo Zulu podcast. Uh, today we're doing a we're doing something new here on the show today. Uh, one, this is uh, audio only today. We have a guest, and um, well, you know, some guests just don't want to be on YouTube yet, so we we're not going to take it there with this gentleman. Uh, I was out on the on the Reddit checking things out, and I found a subreddit that. Uh, was for podcast guests. So, you know, um, having watching, you know, other uh, big influence like Gary Vee and other places and, you know, them kind of hyping me up and telling me that, you know, not me personally, but, you know, just telling the people they talk to that they try to help uh, mo- motivate and stuff is like, you got to take some risks sometimes. So I took a risk. I posted on there looking for guests for the podcast. And uh, Mr. Andrew, e- is it Egan? Yeah, it's Egan. Egan. Okay. Mr. Andrew Egan reached out and said, hey, you know, uh, excuse me, he, he's, he comes from a uh, military, we, we call him affectionately military brat background. And, um, you know, so quickly, as soon as I saw his name, I took it to Google, like most people do nowadays. And, uh, you know, I found some interesting things on him, you know, some things that he's writing for. He's a writer that lives in New York, you know, and uh, I kind of saw that on, on the TDM website. And it's kind of like, oh, how cliche, right? A, a writer living in New York. But, you know, who better to talk to than a writer living in New York that probably has some cool life experiences. So, you know, this isn't going to be your typical uh, Bravo Zulu podcast, probably, where we're going to talk a lot of military stuff, right? We're, you know, we're going to have Andrew kind of talk about his bringing up as a military child, an uh, Army son. And, um, and then we're going to transition to what Andrew does, right, and some of the things uh, that he writes and some of the shows that he's going to be featured here on uh, in the real near future. And just kind of wrap our heads around some of that. So, uh, Andrew, uh, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule and your life to, uh, as I thank everyone, to help me uh, live out a dream that I'm trying to achieve. So, I appreciate you very much uh, up front. You know, I appreciate that. So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, as you mentioned, my name is Andrew Egan, and I'm a writer based in New York City. I uh, write for a website called Tedium. Uh, you can find us at tedium.co. Uh Basically, the focus there is to write about small things that have larger importance. Um, and that can range on anything from, for example, like a phrase template, as you noted when I wrote uh, an article a couple of months ago about uh, the actor's actor. And y- you can use basically that kind of uh, phrase or a phrase template like that because it comes up in other industries uh, like, you know, pilot's pilot, etc. Um, you can use that as a unique gauge for success. Um, and it's something that, again, has a very small meaning, but you can, it has a larger importance if you're just willing to look into it and, and dig a little bit more, which is pretty much what my uh, purview is over at Tedium. Um, th- I guess one of the reasons why I've been going around doing some podcasts, uh, or I guess the primary reason why I've been going around doing podcasts has been that, uh, like this upcoming Sunday, we're doing this on the 10th. I'm not really sure when, you know, your stuff comes out. Yeah. Uh, but on the, uh, 13th, uh, I'll be in the, Episode four of season two of the Toys That Built America. It's a history channel show. Um, my, a couple of my articles that I wrote, uh, sort of, uh, helped form their opinion and that episode. Uh, and that is on a man named AC Gilbert, who, uh, is the inventor of the erector set amongst other sort of unique toy innovations. Uh, fascinating guy. Um, you know, I think it was more, I'm less of an expert on the history of the Erector set than I am just fascinated by what that person was um, and how he was able to be as like a marketer and an executive and as a general person. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I cover a broad range of things, everything from, yeah, again, like weird phrase templates to the history of, you, you know, toys to the every, you know, you know, my first article for Tedium was actually on paramotorists. Those are the people who take the like modified parachutes and basically strap a lawnmower engine to their yeah. back and they take the sky. Yeah. So I, I actually followed a, a, an air endurance race called Icarus uh, from Polson, Montana to just outside Henderson, Nevada. I think I did like 12 states, like 10 states in like 12 days. Um, you were flying you know, or, or you were just following was, it? No, God. Lord, no. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. No, I was just in a support uh, truck. Uh, basically, I was in a Jeep Wrangler just following him around and you know, trying to get as many pictures as I could take. Um, saw, you know, went to a bunch of places I've never been. Don't know how often, how many of them I'll uh, get to go see again. Uh, but it ended up being, you know, just getting to explore like that part of America was just breathtaking. I mean, Utah yeah. is one of the most gorgeous places, I think, around. Yeah. I mean, I've done my third bit of traveling, obviously, but uh utah is just gorgeous yeah i hear that a lot i have some friends that uh friends that have been stationed there there's a couple bases up there and stuff um yeah that that i hear the same thing about utah so you know let's back up a little bit you know you've you've uh, about how how old are you just so i get like your your life 36 36 right so you're you're my age right um young we're young right and yeah sure i always find it amazing um how much one can accomplish in, in such a short time. Uh, I'm sure you're educated, things like that. So you're looking at post-education, everything like that. But even before that, coming up, being raised uh, by uh, your dad was in the army you shared, right? Yeah, yeah. He, um, yeah, he was in for, okay, this is kind of difficult, like not necessarily to, to talk about, but like in terms of like what I know and what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before I kind of, before I came here, I, I was like really reflecting. I didn't ask my dad any specifics about that. He doesn't know I'm doing this. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, what I was, when I was kind of reflecting on this, I was, I realized, you know, how hazy a lot of my memories are. Mm-hmm. And even if some of them are incredibly intense, you know, like uh, my dad was in the uh, first cab division in, uh, you know, based in Fort Hood, Texas. And he was with that unit. Uh, when they went overseas to the operations desert shield and then storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I intensely remember these like ceremony cavalry charges they did. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they'd have like the guys on the horses, like, you know, charging down the field, like, you know, the, the massive cannons in the background going off. And I, you know, uh, like my dad still to this day actually has a, like, I, did a drawing of it when I was like five or something, mm-hmm. uh, four or five. And it's still framed in, in my parents' house up to this day. But like what, I mean, I knew he was a captain at that time and I knew he was a, a company commander. Okay. Like what exactly was he doing? I, I know he was there. I know he's right. saw combat, Yeah. but like what exactly he's doing, you know, cause I imagine a, a lot of times when you have other guests, on, you guys are like rattling out acronyms. Mm-hmm. You're talking about like, you know, really specific places and jobs. And, and I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I think his, his MOS was like 98 Sierra Bravo. Like, I, I think that translated into Spanish speaking airborne or <laughs> okay. like airborne infantry, like something to that effect. Yeah. Um, but again, like what's always kind of wild to me is like, you know, I know where we lived. Um, you know, I know where I was, but like sort of what was happening around me is just kind of remarkable. Even if I know the sort of the overview, 
what I don't know is, is something that I still find like fascinating because we'll have conversations. My dad and I, when I'm, you know, when I'm back home, uh, they live in Houston now. Um, and so when I'm back there, you know, we'll have conversations. I'll just be like, Oh, that's why that happened. You know, yeah. like, or any, any, any number of things. Um, but he is one of the rare guys who, uh, I mean, well, so he first enlisted actually in 1974. Mm-hmm. Um, and he hit E5, he hit Sergeant, um, and then left and went to college. Uh, and I believe at, during that time he was just kind of doing the half like national guard thing while yeah. you were in school. And it was around that pro- that time he, he met my mom and he was always like very adamant about wanting to return to the military as an officer. I think he had to wait a couple of years um, for a commission to open because uh, this was, you know, end of Vietnam going into the early 1980s. Yeah. Uh, but they were able to, he was able to get one uh, in like, I want to say 1979 or 1980. Um, and then his, his active duty career, he hit captain, uh, his active duty career ended in 1995 or so. And I was born in 1986. Yeah. So like, it's really funny to me. how like half of my childhood was spent in the military and the other half was trying to realize that I just wasn't in that environment anymore. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. it's, it's different. Like I was, I was 12 or 13 when I had like this really rough day in middle school and I just came home and we had moved to that area after my dad's, after our last active duty post, which was Lafayette, Louisiana. And so I was like 10 when we moved there and I was like maybe 12 or so when I just had this really rough day at school. And I told my parents, I was like, man, I just can't wait until we move again. Because again, like every two years, like clockwork, we move. Yeah. Right. And my, my parents having to just like, seriously, like Andrew, we live here now. <laughs> you live here now. Yeah. And I, my, my takeaway from that conversation being like, Oh shit, I need some friends. Like, I just, I, you know, I, I was pretty good at making casual acquaintances, but kind of keeping people at arm's length Mm -hmm. because I was going to have to move. Yeah. You know? And so it was, that was when I, I started taking it seriously and trying to like, you know, really ingratiate myself. By then it was kind of a little too late and the jokes on them ended up having to move anyway. (laughs) (laughs) How was it? So, you know, because I, I, I look at a lot of people like that, right? Like my, my own wife, her, her dad's a uh, retired 30-year E9, right? Uh, yeah. whatever, whatever equivalent that is in the Army, right? But um, a lot of times it's like she lived her, – her brother's also active duty. He's in the Navy, you know, uh, as am I. And it's interesting when you look at these um, older, older generations that have the parents, like you said, you spent about half your life as that dependent. Right. And yeah. then the other half, you, you, your dad was out, he was retired and a whole new life was happening. And well, then, kind of. Yeah. Right. So the way what, what, makes, what makes this all kind of funny, right, is that he he basically he had been, you know, enlisted. He'd been an officer. Uh, he loved he loved the military. He loved the army. Yeah. Um, but he basically was in this was in the, that Clinton era. This is why a lot of guys his age like hate Democrats. It makes like it has nothing. It has really nothing to do with policy. It's just that they they, they basically screwed careers over because yeah. they're like, oh, we don't have the Soviet Union anymore, right? Now, whatever. Anyway, so he um, uh, he basically found himself in the the mid you know nineties. Like he got passed over for a pretty key promotion uh, from captain to major, and it was like it's time. Like yeah. it's not gonna, happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, but almost immediately, he the first thing he did was sign up for the reserves. Oh, wow. Really? 
almost mm. immediately. Last time I saw him in uniform was 2006. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, like, a span, like over a span of over 30 years, and he was routine. Like, um, you know, deployments came up often, and he would take them. Yeah. Um, he didn't do, he didn't do any additional combat after he went, uh, reserve, but you know, there were training opportunities all over, you know, post nine 11 and he, he took them. Um, he finished off his career totally as uh, he got promoted uh, finally when he was in the, um, excuse me, uh, when he was in the, the reserves to major and that's where he finished up his career. And what kind of impact did that have you on you as like that child through the, I mean, he's out, he's in the reserves, but like through your high school, going into your college years, like what kind of impact did that have on you to drive you to what you're doing now? Well, you know, I realized pretty quickly, um, you know, that the, the military wasn't going to be my path. Yeah. Um, I did, I did look at, so I was offered a few, uh, DOD scholarships, uh, to a few different schools. Um, and my dad was just like, you know, it's not you. Like, I mean, you probably fine, you know, but it's like, you're not a career guy. Like you're not, and if you're not, if you're not going to be interested in this long term, like there's no real point. Like you might as well get your life started doing other things. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, okay. Honestly, that's not bad advice, you know, when it comes to whether or not your, you know, your child should follow you into this, in this career path. Uh, but I have a younger brother who did not go either. You know, didn't even explore. Like, maybe they'll pay for college. He's just like, nah, good. I'm not, I'm not a military guy. Um, what, what I learned, you know, I will say, especially because, like, um, so my background as a writer is a journalist. Um, you know, a lot of what I write is nonfiction. Uh, and I got started really early. I went to the University of Texas at Austin and I, uh, was just on the campus newspaper and I just kind of got, you know, pretty lucky in terms of, you know, the promotion and path. So I, I, within about two years at the paper, I went from, you know, general assignment to covering the governor's election to an associate editor. And so from there, I pretty much just like fell into proper journalism. So my first real job, you know, outside of like, or my first, the first job I needed to build my current career path, um, was at uh, Forbes magazine. Uh, I started off as an intern and I spent like two years there uh, as a reporter after that I got hired. And what I can absolutely tell you, and it's, it's sort of a blessing and a curse uh, for having the, the, the military brat background mm-hmm. is that you get really good at first in, first impressions. You get really good at like at meeting some, at meeting a group of people for the first time and just making yourself seem like you've always been there. Oh, okay. So first impressions from you presenting yourself. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Like, it, you know, I, I can count like on the number, you know, it, it, it almost doesn't phase me anymore when people are like, oh yeah, you remember this person and he was here like 10 years ago. And I'm like, dude, I've lived here for two. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like that's, that becomes a thing. And that is really useful in journalism. You know, it is a really useful thing to be able to like do some cursory information about an individual, call them up, and then just be like, oh, man, I've known this guy for years. Yeah. You know, and that's absolutely a function of, of, of being a military brat. Now, obviously, it's personality. Not everybody, you know, it's a, there are millions of kids who grew up with this kind of background. We're not yeah. a monolith. Yeah. You know, we're not all the same. You know, we've got different personality types. We've got our own different issues. Um, but it is absolutely a trait, I've noticed, like amongst other military brats, especially – you know, if it was a significant portion of your childhood. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it, that yeah. just kind of falls in line with that, you know, new school, new friends. Yeah, you, like you said, you keep them at an arm's length, but you, you need to fit in as quickly as you can because you don't want to be, you know, for not such good word, but the nerdy kid that doesn't fit in or doesn't have friends that doesn't want to, you know, participate or anything like that, right? Like you want, you want to be immediately part of the, the group, whatever group it is you want to be Absolutely. a part of. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's the reason why I play sports. I really don't think, or why I played sports, I really don't think I have a natural interest in it the same way. Yeah. I just really try hard to not be bad. Yeah. Like to just like not be the worst guy out there, <laughs> just like not be your problem. Yeah. I had to train to be that guy. And I did. And I did it because I understood the value in it. Yeah. You know, and again, it's, it's you only learn that when you like, when you've had to be the new kid at the playground for, like, over three separate elementary schools. Yeah. You know, it was like, yeah, it's easy way to get in is to be not bad at, at whatever sports being played. Yeah. There, there was only one school in my entire, in my background. I, I grew up uh, completing, like, and that was a middle school. I went there those three years, but I went to two separate high schools. I went to three separate elementary schools. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you have to get pretty good at, at knowing or at just creating that positive first impression. Yeah. And honestly, you get there by screwing it up once or twice. <laughs> like with anything, right? So with the Forbes thing, uh, you know, from Forbes and, and then to talk to us about, you know, you writing for Forbes, what you wrote, and then talk to us a little bit about your tedium stuff before we get into the next part of it, you know, with, with what you're doing on Sunday and everything like that. Cause like I said, I was, I was going through the website and I'll link it, your, your TDM website and anything else you want me to um, in, in the show notes and everything. But like one of the ones that just kind of sent out what, or that stood out to me was a, a blanks blank. And then another one, I didn't get to read it, um, but the immigrants uh, Im- immigrating to your dreams. Right. And, and you know, the, the, that one says considering the surprising complex mechanisms that face talented athletes attempting to immigrate to another country for a professional team. And it has, you know, probably the most famous one right now, uh, Giannis, um, yeah. there on the, on the website page, right. Uh, you know, yeah. NBA champ, MVP and, you know, immigrant. Yeah. So, you know, talk to us about some of this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the tedium stuff, uh, basically, you know, it, it, like I said earlier, small things, larger importance, um, the immigrating to your dreams, uh, article itself, uh, really like, yeah, Giannis is featured heavily because, um, well, he's pretty much like the poster child for how internationalized American sports leagues have become, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, internationally, Americans get a lot of shit for calling, you know, the, the champions of their leagues, the world champions. Yeah. Well, with the exception of, of MLS, like, it's true. Like, the world champions of basketball, yes, they're in the United States. The world champions of American football, of course, they're in the United States. The world champions of baseball, meh, sure, arguable, but come on. You know, like yeah. um, hockey, the NHL is the premier hockey league, though it is dominated, it's historically been dominated by non-Americans, right? But what's what I found utterly fascinating about this issue was that despite the fact that these guys have all of the resources in the world, that they have dedicated visa categories to helping them immigrate between countries, that they have, you know, lawyers and employers on speed dial just waiting for these guys to clear, you know, to, to clear their immigration statuses, they still run into hiccups. And it's not just with the United States. In the, uh, in the mid-90s, there was a British goalkeeper, I'd have to look up his name, uh, I'm sorry, an American goalkeeper, uh, who was routinely, he was denied like four times trying to play in the English Premier League. He was going to be like one of the first guys to really crack yeah. you know, the top level of European association football. 
and he just was denied four times. It was only like he was denied on the third time, but they appealed it and it somehow worked. And then he went on to literally be like the longest tenured goalkeeper with like the longest active streak of starts of anyone in the EPL. So like it's not even necessarily talent that keeps people out in those situations. It, it really is. I, I ended up quoting at the end of that article. Um, it, it was a guy who does like he helps assist with he's like a baseball blogger who's also an immigration lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he just talks about like this issue. He's like, yeah, I mean, we've got guys waiting at the courthouse you know, to get to buy all these things and they still get denied. And so I'm like, okay, so what does that say about the average person? Good yeah, luck. Yeah. The overall bigger immigration problem that a lot of people, uh, you know, will cite and, and things like that. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah, bad system. Yeah, it is. It, and it's completely broken one, you know, it doesn't like, you know, we, you know, we can say a lot about well, various issues surrounding this one, but like, you know, yeah, when you've got, when you've got the people who have all the resources in the world still having issues, it's like, well, you know, how do we, how do we continue to attract the best and brightest in any meaningful way that isn't a royal pain in the ass? You know, I, when I was writing this article, I was just like talking uh, to like a drinking buddy of mine at a bar about it. And I didn't realize he was Canadian and he was, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. And you guys have like probably one of the easier like paths to the United States in residency. And he just looks at me and goes, if that's the easiest, God forbid. Yeah. And I was like, mm. Jeez, whoops. <laughs> what what yeah. uh what else? So like what are some of your standout articles that you've written that, that kind of come to mind and the ones that, that you know what I mean? Like the ones that like, had the, maybe the most fun or the hardest time, but you know, some standouts. Yeah. My favorite my favorite was the time I caught a ghost. The time you caught a ghost? Yeah. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about that. I I love a good ghost story. Well, of course, it's more of a metaphorical yes. ghost. Uh, it's the, the name of the article is called uh, The Case of the Missing Cable Channel. And the, the sort of the inspiration for this is that previously I, you know, I like to write about like weird specialty publications from time to time. Mm-hmm. And so before I got to this, this particular article, I was writing about the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. I don't know if you remember those, like these, no. these books that were just like, it's basically like, compendiums of just random trivia mm-hmm. and people would like the design of the book was to literally just leave it in the bathroom. So you'd have something to read be like in the era before cell phones. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I was writing about this because it was like weirdly popular and weirdly successful, but um, I was digging through, I I'd, I'd located an old copy and I was digging through it and I found this weird little like trivia fact. Right. It said that in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, there was a Canadian cable channel that had no sound. It was just pictures. And what they showed basically was just um, uh, basically just like old school graphics, like the, the old school 1980s graphics mm-hmm. but of like children's stories. And so the intention was that parents would like read the their you know, books to children. Mm-hmm. Like it was just a channel where you could just like put this up and here are these pictures and like in a pretty rough graphics, but like, here's the story. And they had some licensing that they did with a few major things and the whole thing never really took off. But what was really fascinating to me and why it was called a ghost is that some other writer would, had gone on the path to try and find uh, the footage and called it. It's like a pop culture ghost. There's no evidence. Of oh, it. Okay. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, this is weird, right? Like in an era of YouTube, like how does something like this 
just not exist and like readily available, right. easy to find. Right. And when you, so I started digging into it and I realized the, the reason why it was so hard to find is because of the nature of how they aired things. It was just computer programming. They didn't have like a VHS that they put into a thing and then aired, you mm-hmm. know, it was just code that was appearing on a TV screen. It's just, they were doing it via cable satellite feeds, right? Yeah. Um, the probably the best comparison would be the uh, old school again, like airport, like departure and arrival things. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's keeping footage of that. It's just code that's being displayed right. on a TV. Yeah, right. And so I'm like, okay, I start digging into the founders, uh, the guys who created this thing, and I I happened to f- I one of them passed away, had passed away, um, but the other guy still alive. So I reach out to him. Lo and behold, he's willing to talk. Great. So we start talking about this thing. He's like, hey, man, nobody's asked me about this in like 20 years. I'm like, great. That's even better for me. Right. You know? <laughs> um, and so he uh, he's like tells me, he's like, yeah, you know, I think I've got like a VHS of it somewhere around like in my cluttered like garage. And he spends like a couple of weeks looking for it. And he's like, I, I just don't have it. I can't find it. I'm like, God damn it. Like, this is the thing I really want for the, for the article. And then I just, I, I had this thought. And then I was like, by any chance, do you have any of the original code? laying around and he goes oh yeah all that I'm like what the hell I'm like is there a difference between that code and he's like no no difference whatsoever i'm like so it's the same thing he's like yes yeah, same thing i'm like fantastic and so he played it on his computer recorded it i got it and i was able to upload it to the internet and as near as we can figure both me and my editor and others it's the only known uh footage so, so is this now available on YouTube? Can I can I post a link to this yeah. somewhere and so people yeah, can check yeah, yeah, this yeah. out? Yeah, go to the go to yeah, go to the case of the missing cable channel on Tedium and you can pull up that the link is there at the yeah. bottom. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm gonna definitely do that. Cause it, I mean that's really interesting, right? I what I was thinking as you're telling stories like the old school, it was it during like the fifties, sixties, right? When TV would turn off, right? Mm-hmm. And like there there'd be the last show of the night. And then it roll credit yep. to like American flag and, you know, all the patriotism that that yeah. was of that time, you know, so to say. And, you know, Star Spangled Banner playing and they like <laughs> and TV would be done for the day. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking as you're like t- telling me about it. It was it was really it was really interesting because like a bunch of the, the, the reader comments I got on that particular story was people who were from like who who'd had the channel and were like, I thought it was crazy. You know, like mm. trying to like explain to people, it's like, yeah, we used to have this cable channel that had no sound. Like it just showed text. And people were like, what are you talking about? That was never a thing. And for most of the country, it never was. But a few people had it. And they're like, thank you. God, I thought I was nuts. But then, I mean, that's a strict Canada thing, right? You said it was in Canada? Um, I, they did have a couple of American deals. So okay. like um, just because of the nature of like the Canadian-U.S. border, especially yeah. – Free, you know, going back, you had you had things that got that got shared just yeah. because of the proximity. Yeah. Um, uh, they did attempt to do some things in Florida, um, but that that ultimately didn't really work out. But the, the company itself was based in and created by Canadian yeah. people, and it was a yeah, Canadian company. And so. nowadays, you can go to YouTube and get all of that, you know, through millions of channels. With I, I, something I play regularly, like uh, for our children here, it's like a uh, lo-fi music. Right. Where it where it's just, uh, you know, soundtracks over an artistic uh, drawing or, you know, yeah. very, very minimal movement through it. Right. So it, it's crazy how things uh, they, they advance. And then with social media that we have today, it's it's something completely different. But oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing the, really the, new. 
a lot of the, a lot of the parallels to what was going on or what's going on now i mean was not lost on the living creator you know he yeah. was like yeah yeah i'm i'm aware yeah i was a pioneer but like you know, ain't no money for me you know it's like <laughs> Yeah, he, was, you know, he's, he seems like he's very content. He seems like he's very happy. You know, yeah. uh, it was an interesting, it's very interesting story. It was an interesting, like, you know, maybe one day there's a book in it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was, it's a fascinating story. So yeah. no, that that's really cool. So now let's get into you know you you have this show airing the toys that built uh, the toys that built America, right? And uh, you are, you said you're being featured as an expert. Is that the correct way to put it yeah. on this AC Gilbert? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think actually the the way they build me is as an Americana expert. Oh, okay. And that, okay. Was, and, and that was me more than anything because I, I jumped in and I was like, please don't call me a toy expert. <laughs> like this, this doesn't seem well, – one, it's not right. Like I don't, yeah. I don't know shit about <laughs> toys. Um, but where, where my interest in A.C. Gilbert started uh, was with the um, – was with the uh, basically he's created mad, modern magic kits. Um, so like if you go to just like you know any toy shop and like you know you buy a basic magic kit, they've got like you know the a ball trick, they've got a string trick, a couple of basic you know card tricks. Um, he basically created that, um, and he was a pretty fascinating person. Uh, he went to Yale. Uh, he was on path. It was you know, this was something that I thought was also like oddly interesting. Was that he was kind of set up to be like kind of a pioneer in sports medicine. Like he went to Yale. He was in medical school. He uh, himself was an athlete. He actually won a gold medal at oh, the nineteen oh six Olympics. Nineteen oh four. Um. Yeah, nineteen oh six. Um. And when he uh, he did it, kind of like a magician would. Uh, he won a gold medal in the pole vault by basically implementing or using one of the first like truly bendable uh, poles, oh. and he this was made out of bamboo, and it worked. It worked. Yeah, like it worked geniusly. Like within the next, you know, uh, some of my research, it's like pretty much almost immediately every pole vaulter in the world pivoted. Yeah, and and then it's it's almost like a magic trick. You know, the guy obviously had the ability, the physical ability to pull it off. Like that's not an easy feat. You know, to pull vault over something, even if it's bending. Um, but he, you know, previously, you know, the things would snap in half. You get guys who get impaled. You know, stabbed like because they're using like pretty rigid poles to yeah. pull this off. Um, so he does that, and. What's interesting is that there, this I, I'm not sure how much of it it's going to make it into the episode, so I might as well say it here. Um, but uh, there's a bit of speculation, right? Because he AC Gilbert goes on to create the Erector set, and for those of you who aren't familiar, the Erector set is basically like pieces of steel that kind of mimic how you'd create a modern skyscraper. You know, you could you screw things in together. And you can do a whole bunch of crazy, awesome stuff with it. I think the you most know, the most familiar. I might be totally wrong, but when I heard no, it, I, think, I think know exactly what you're gonna say. Yes. I think I know exactly the Sandlot. Yes, <laughs> the Sandlot, right? Yeah, like yeah. every if you don't know if you're erector, say what is that? The Sandlot. The, the, they build yeah. the glove to go over the fence and like little closer. You know, like come yeah, on, who exactly. doesn't know that? Yeah, exactly. You know, from from our generation, you know, millennial generation, thirty six year old, you yeah. know the Sandlot. That's an erector yeah. set. I mean, I didn't know anybody who played with Rector sets. I didn't know, like, but what I knew about Rector sets was absolutely from the Sandlot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so like he, he goes on to create that basically. And he can do a whole bunch of things. You can create a catapult, you know, as was demonstrated in that particular thing. Um, in that particular movie. Um, but he, uh, there's a British toy that proceeds and it's called Mechano, M-E-C-C-A-N-O, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, for example, if you show a Brit an erector set, they're going to call it Mechano. You show an American a Mechano set, they're going to call it an erector set. Yeah. Like, it really is. And the Mechano absolutely predates it. In fact, it was invented a couple of years before A.C. Gilbert ends up at the London Olympics. Mm-hmm. By this point, this guy is already making money. Now, how much is sort of up for debate? But he's making money manufacturing these magic kits, right? Mm-hmm. He himself is actually a pretty talented magician. Uh, he was able to pay his way through Yale, um, making a, like in nineteen, you know, early nineteen hundreds money, like a hundred dollars a night. Yeah, that's, like, that's big money. That is balling. Like and again, <laughs> just just being a really solid like stage performer. He's really charismatic. He's mm-hmm. incredibly well built. He's an athlete. All these other things, and so like the the the, the bit of speculation is like we don't really like AC Gilbert always said that he got the inspiration for the Erector set because he was taking the train from Connecticut to New York City, and New York City, you know, in the pre-war era is like building up these massive girders, you know, and honestly that continued for like another twenty thirty years anyway. So he sees all of these things, he's like, man, wouldn't it be great if kids have this toy? That it's like, yeah, I guess that's true. Also, you were in London when that toy got developed and you were clearly interested in manufacturing toys already. Are you telling me you didn't go into a toy shop and notice one of the most popular toys being sold to British children at the time? Yeah. Eh. (laughs) I mean, so obviously it's speculation on my part. Like, there's no... Yeah. You know, I, it's not like you know, it's not like I've like seen any of his correspondence. Said, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm totally gonna steal this British dude's idea. It's yeah. awesome. No, <laughs> no one's gonna stop me. I'm gonna change, like, I'm gonna change it up just enough that Americans are gonna get the appeal, and nobody's gonna stop me. So guess what he did? Yeah, he did. It. He added a motor. Oh, oh, that that's what made it. That's what made it the best thing, right? It, is is yeah, the motorized the ability? Yep. Yeah. And that was the big. And eventually, Mechanel was like shit. So they started copying, and then <laughs> at that point, then it's like, well, who's who? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, yeah, he had a fascinating life. Um, and then, of course, like the, you know, the impact uh, that if you were a architect in the United States in the 20, in the second, especially in the second half of the 20th century, you almost certainly played with director sets as a kid. And there's like... I mean, there are some there are some architects who have direct who directly been like, yeah, of course that's where that design came from. Like, it's just an erector set as a kid. Yeah, I mean, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have an erector set as a kid? No. No. Well, was no. you know by the time by eighties and nineties was was it still a thing? Yeah, Lego. We were, we were Lego. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the brand itself ended up like I mean, it just it did lose it lost popularity relative yeah. to other building toys right like you know the lego is so massive nowadays that it is the largest manufacturer of tires in the world oh wow like yeah i mean like yeah i know you can look it up it's it's weird they uh they uh, they make that much product that they are technically the world's largest manufacturer of tires 
Wow. That's how many they get. That's how many they produce. In the I mean, of the year. I, I believe it because, you know, having a son that's five, I've, I've yeah. been really <laughs> for the last two years, I've been building a lot of Lego sets, you know, um, yeah. unfortunately that somehow become dismantled, uh, you know, because they need to be rebuilt as he puts it. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I so, mean, just because, just because I built the thing, do you think I'm done playing with it? No, <laughs> no not at all. So uh, AC Gilbert, he goes on to make this, you know, erector set. What comes yeah. like with that or during that? You know, where where does his life go? I mean, he's a gold medalist. Now he's a businessman building a erector set. Like, yeah, what man. else happens? Well, he becomes pretty much one of the most like underrated, I think, marketers of the 20th century, right? So, like, you get a lot of. You get a lot of people who are notoriously good at marketing in the 20th century. Um, Henry Ford, uh, you know, is notorious for for this. Um, but what AC Gilbert manages to achieve is uh, something that none of them could buy, right? So as the United States is entering uh, World War One. Obviously, back then we, you know, we do war differently. Uh, like the economy actually like has to noticeably shift material over to the war effort. Yeah. Um, and pretty much one of the first things on the chopping block was uh, the toy industry. You know, we don't need steel and toys; well, we need them for for tanks and guns. Mm. Makes sense. All right. Um, AC Gilbert was like, nah, you know, that's going to hurt my business. So he goes to Congress and makes. Probably one of the first, like, true impassioned pleas for the defense of play, right? You have to understand, like, in 1917, you know, the year the United States enters World War I, um, the idea of a childhood is new, right? Like, you know, you've got, you know, child, child labor protection laws are new, you know? Um, this is the idea of an of a childhood that is filled with play and imagination and, and free time to develop a, a all of this is new. Mm-hmm. Right. And so AC Gilbert goes to Congress and he makes an, he makes the argument that, you know, basically if we remove these things, um, what we do is we hamper the development of children. Like we can't get that time back. And somehow, for some reason, Congress agreed. Hmm. And so that year, newspapers across the country decided to hail A.C. Gilbert as the man who saved Christmas. Wow. And if you're selling toys, man, you can't get much better than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – I'm sure people are running out, picking up everything he was selling at that, at that time, right? Nope. Yeah, they ended up, they obviously ended up expanding. They end up like, you know, making more things than just director sets. They start selling chemistry sets, telescopes, microscopes. Um, And, you know, by all accounts, you know, AC Gilbert just kind of worked. Like he, that's what he liked. You know, he was able to keep the company profitable and afloat during the Great Depression. Um, He... I mean, again, like there weren't significant drawbacks after, you know, during World War II. Um, I want to say it was like two years after he quote unquote retired from the company. Uh, he was still kind of running things. Um, he, he passed away. I mean, he, oh, wow. his life was, his, yeah, his life was his job. Yeah. And um, by all accounts um, of the relationship between him and his son who took over, 
uh, the company and then promptly, you know, took the ship down. <laughs> um, <laughs> it may not, may not necessarily be his fault. It sort of like just really depends, you know. It, it was a rough era for, for you know, non-space related toys. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I want to say it was in early 1960s uh, that the company ends up like kind of ending up in receivership. Doesn't seem like he was a very nice guy. Yeah. Like, you know, given the relationship between him and his son. Um, but, you know, it's definitely an interesting story. Uh, I find the guy, like, utterly fascinating. But I I sort of ended up, like, you know, obviously I was interested in, like, sort of the magic kits and, and how that came about. But what was fascinating to me um, initially was that in the early 20th century, you have a lot of, like, entrepreneurs – uh, guys who would like kind of become their own little titans of industry mm-hmm. who have a background as magicians. Like mm-hmm. it's not uncommon okay. to, to run into like some of these early 19th century, these early 20th century industrialists, like the, uh, basically the pioneers of modern phosphorescent paint, i.e. like, you know, the stuff that's reflective, mm-hmm. you know, when light in, in the dark magicians, they were actually just looking for ways to use the, the chemical properties for magic shows. Um, and so you like, you run into these things like pretty regularly. It's, it's, again, it's a little thing and it's like, you know, the degree to the larger importance is something I always kind of struggle with, but you know, there are trends that, that are pretty easy to recognize when you start looking into them. What got you into this? Because you know you you brought it up a couple times, and, and with your tedium side, or not your tedium side, but your tedium writings, right? You, you keep mentioning it's like these little things that have the bigger impact. Yeah. What it, that seems to be like a, a part of you or something that looks for that. What what yeah, what like yeah. started that? Is that like a something from a kid, or like you learned in college about? Is it a, a writing mean, trait or something? Like what is it? You know, it, it, it's a mix of things. Like when I was a younger kid, I. You know, when you're young and you just don't understand the concept of fairness, mm-hmm. you know, like that's things can just be unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember my mom saying like, over and over again when I was a kid, you know, pick your battles, pick your battles, pick your battles. And I was like, no, the small things matter, mm-hmm. you know. And then when I got when I became a journalist or when I started doing like clinical proper journalism, I realized like, yeah, the small things really matter. Mm-hmm. And like in ways that. I don't think we ever truly appreciate, right? And so I guess, you know, so there, there are like two tedium articles that I think, you know, there's the one that I mentioned in the case of the missing cable channel. I just love that, you know, but there's a little like real world importance to it, you know, like it's more or less just kind of filling in some obscure history. Um, but where the small thing occasionally is tedium isn't necessarily like a journalism website. Yeah. We do adhere to journalistic standards. Um, but we, we don't necessarily bill ourselves as like journalists in a news outlet, even though that's my background, that's my editor's background. That's a lot of our background. Yeah. Um, but every once in a while we notice something really small that has a much bigger impact. And, uh, you know, like we mentioned earlier, um, I live in New York city, right? And if any, anybody who's ever been to New York City, uh, maybe you've had the misfortune of taking our subway. <laughs> um, it's, I personally love it, but I, I completely understand, you know, people's confusion, their, their apprehension, their, you know, 
But one of the, the most iconic elements of the, the subway is basically your Metro Pass. It's this like yellow piece of plastic. It's got a black strip on it. It's got some information on the back. Sometimes they do limited edition versions that are kind of cool, somewhat collectible. But for the most part, it's just a thing you keep in your wallet and fine. Long story short, we ended up getting a tip from a reader who's based in New York City who saw them saw some maintenance workers updating just a you know a standard terminal where you would get a metro card and they noticed that they were using this defunct operating system from the from the 1980s that IBM developed called iOS 2 right now okay what's okay you know again obscure kind of filling in obscure history here so what's the important well long story short we were able to realize that how the New York City subway system was structured, um, sort of inadvertently, maybe not so inadvertently, um, was basically discriminating against certain types of cards. And what I mean by that is that when you use a New York City Metro card, typically you have one of two options. You have an unlimited pass or you pay by your ride, right? And an unlimited pass swipes really easily, right? Just squink, boom, go. But let's say you have a pay-by-ride, suddenly that machine has to do math. Mm. And so it can usually take multiple swipes to get that card to be accepted, right? Mm. Especially if you have exactly 275, i.e. the amount of money it takes to take a one-way one way ride on a subway. Yeah. Right? And it, it, So in that time, what you have is time theft. Yeah. Right? And you have people who've missed their train, who people who've missed, who've likely been fired because yeah. they were late too many times, right? Now, there are two types of people in New York City who traditionally use pay-by-ride. One is tourists. New York City, neither the city or the New Yorkers themselves give a shit what happens to tourists. So yeah. <laughs> that, that, like them, them having to swipe multiple times, not a big deal. Right. But the others are people who don't have enough upfront cash after paying for rent and food mm -hmm. to have a thing by ride, i.e. the poorest people in New York City. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a small thing. The stupid, defunct, open source-ish now operating system that IBM developed and was adopted by the, the MTA as they were digitizing the system led to us being like, oh, hey, that's clearly fucked up, right? Yeah. And the other thing too is that this started off as a hunch, right? And then after that initial, so that story ended up getting picked up by Vice and a couple of other places as well, because that's a thing that happens with our our work. Yeah. Uh, from time to time, um, we ended up like somebody sent us basically like, oh hey, you missed this, and I was like, what? Oh son of a bitch! And it was a report from the public advocate of the city of New York from two thousand five noting the exact problem I was talking about, but not why it was happening. Mm. And so I was like, well, that's good to know I was right. Yeah. What, what, what are some, what, two questions, I guess. I'll send them both your way. Um, what is like you, your dream journalist job, if you have one, right, as a strict journalist? Let's just go with that one. Like what, what, what are you... Um, cause you know, we didn't really touch on like what you're doing now. You write, you write for tedium. I don't know if you write for any other publications that, you know, kind of pay the bills and keep the lights on, but like, where's your, where do you want to end up? You know, like I said, we're young, right? So like, wh what do you want to do? Yeah. Book deal would be yeah. nice. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've, I've got enough 
experience with the major legacy publications to know what it's what it entails to work there. Yeah. Um, yes, it would be absolutely flattering for the New York Times to be like, "Hey, we would love for you to work here." Um, I'm not applying. Right. You know. Um, you know, it's not a job I'm, I'm seeking. Um, in large part, just because. You know, I, I was a reporter, again, at, at Forbes for two years. Uh, I was at ABC News for about a year as well. Um, and again, like, you know, we're almost an hour into this, and I don't even necessarily feel like it's worth mentioning. Yeah. You know, like, it's so I've, I've just had that experience, and it's not, it's not necessarily pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the nature of turning journalism into a commercial enterprise, you're, you lose a lot in that process. If I'm perfectly honest with you, if there's like a dream, like, you know, it would be NPR, PBS, something to that effect. Yeah. You know, the AP maybe, um, where it really is just like, here's what happened. Like we're not discussing anything else. Right. You know, it is, you know, the temperature, it is, Oh, it is seven fifty in New York city, 48 <laughs> degrees. And this happened. Yeah. Like, you know, so that would, that would be, you know, incredibly appealing. But that's not, you know, the, that sort of like really, you know, on the on the money, like on the ground reporting. This is something I've been really drawn to, and like and since I was much younger, uh, it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, like uh, this last weekend, uh, over Halloween weekend, uh, there were the Cycle Messenger World Championships and the North American Cycling World Cha- uh, Cycling Championships were held in New York City. And I'm basically doing a, a, a piece on, you know, bike messengers, like, you know, the six year, no e-bike, you know, yeah. it's in its culture that goes back a few decades. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but you know, I ended up bouncing around Brooklyn over Halloween weekend. It was just exhausted. And I'm just like, man, when I was a kid, I'd have been like, you know, when I was 22, 23 years yeah. old, I'd have been like, yeah, woo, are we not, oh, we're not going to, for another couple of days. <laughs> I got I got more quotes. I got more people I got to talk to. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, wow, this is, <laughs> you know, can I go home now? <laughs> um, so yeah, that kind of like hardcore on the ground journalism isn't something that necessarily interests me. Um, if I do, you know, I, I still, every once in a while I'll do like an international story. Like I'll deliberately go or I'll, I'll, I'll do a trip where I'm like, okay, let's go to this unique place and, and do this, you know, this cool thing. Like, um, so, for example, I went to uh, Dresden, Germany, to write about the interesting issues accessing certain historical sites and not others. And you know, uh, one of them I wrote. Oh, the primary focus was um, Slaughterhouse Five, the uh, actual slaughterhouse mm-hmm. where Kurt Vonnegut, the American writer, survived the firebombing of Dresden when he was in the military in World War II. Um, and so, you know, like I, I'll do trips like that, or I'll do like the paramotoring thing that I mentioned earlier, um, but. For the most part, you know, I the, the the real goal is more or less a book deal, and I think I have just enough juice to get one done. I'm not quite sure though what I want to do. So as, as far as like first, what, what kind of book you want to write? Yeah, well, the, the topic. I mean, I know, yeah. I know, I want, I know it's going to be a nonfiction. I know it's probably going to have major hints of like the tedium philosophy, i.e. something small with a larger importance. Yeah. What exactly that subject is, I don't know. I've got like three that like I'm, I've been kind of bouncing around for the last couple of years. 
um, you know, I mean, with the history channel thing, it might make more sense to, to do like one focused on like the odd thread of magicians in the early 20th century American business. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, yeah. like that's, you know, if I can make that oddly appealing, you know, like yeah. that's a book, you know? So yeah, I mean, for me, book, you know, they're definitely, they're definitely still, you know, outlets. I absolutely respect, you know, look, I enjoy the New York times, but like I, there are just problems with the reality of, of those jobs. And, when you've done it long enough, you know, I'm now into year 16 of my career as a professional writer. Yeah. Um, it's just really difficult to ignore the realities of that, especially when I've gotten to a point in my life where I don't necessarily need them to feel fulfilled. So that, that's, that's very fair. And, and, you know, as, as a military person, it is relatable, right? I'm now in my 18th year. And, you know, at some point you realize, you know, where you're at in life and where, where it is uh, with with the organizations that, you know, can employ you or want to employ you. And you realize that, you know, you just don't need that to be to feel fulfilled anymore. You know, so, uh, Andrew, yeah. you know, we're about to wrap it up here. Uh, I'll give it one last shot, uh, you know, for, for you to give any advice out there to anyone or, or you know, thank anybody kind of just, you know, last minute, you know, uh, last minute, anything you got to say. Well, you know, since this is a military, like, focused podcast, um, you know, for those of, you know, the listeners who served or are serving but didn't grow up in the military, I realize there are a lot of people who have parents who are in the military, but think that happened before they were born. Or that was, like, it doesn't necessarily overlap with much that, like, they remember or they impact. But if you do have kids, especially if they're like past the age of like kindergarten or whatever, uh, and you and you don't know what that experience was like, um, try and remember they understand a type of the, uh, they understand a, an aspect of military life you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's scary to not know if dad's coming home. Mm. You know, when my dad deployed, I taught myself how to ride a bike. Cause I want him to be proud of him when he came back, you know? Yeah. And he didn't grow up in that environment. You know, he, he grew up in the same house in suburban Minneapolis and he just wanted to get out and explore the world. And, you know, it's funny because he knows he could come on this podcast, shoot the shit all day long, be like your standard to get it. But you know, I understand an aspect of that life. He just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's very valid. Very valid. Yeah. You know. Yep. So, yeah. All right, Andrew. Again, you know, I thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day, uh, your evening there in New York, and, um, you know, and coming on. And, again, I appreciate just very much, you know, you reaching out on the subreddit and uh, letting yeah, all of your uh, – everything you know about A.C. Gilbert, Erector Sets, your, mm-hmm. your life, and some of your story as a military child, and especially that last part, right, you know, as, as a father now with two young ones – uh, set to deploy very soon you know it, it's something that uh that i have realized you know coming up in the last year or two and um 
you know, and that I look at our children like, you know, that's I'll never be able to experience that from them. And uh, I hope they never have to have children that have to experience it from my side. For more information on how you can support the podcast, please visit anchor.fm backslash Bravo Zulu podcast. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely of myself, Joshua Moore, and the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent the DOD, DON or those of the respected institutions or organizations. Thanks for joining us.